0: John 12, 19-36 So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that they are not, you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from the state of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, "...the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also." If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he would die. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Your ongoing ministry to all of our hearts through Your precious Word. We thank You for the Holy Spirit's continued work in all of our hearts and minds and ask and implore and beg that You continue to do that work in us this morning. I thank You, Lord, for this congregation and for their attentiveness to Your truth. I pray that You would make all of our hearts soft that You'd make us ready to receive the Word implanted, which is able to save our souls. We ask for the salvation of the lost and for the edification of the saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sir, we would see Jesus. I've seen that phrase on a couple of pulpits. It's actually right here in front of me on this pulpit. Sir, we would see Jesus. John 12, 21 why this verse of all verses to be put on the front of a pulpit staring any preacher in the eye week after week john 12:21 is not a famous verse it's not a popularly memorized verse it's not like john 3:16 or something like that why john 12:21 sir We would see Jesus. Perhaps the thing that's most notable about it is it's always stuck in my head. I remember seeing this in another church before coming here. And I remember being perplexed by it because the language is archaic to us. How often have you said things like that? Sir, we would see Jesus. What do we mean by would? It comes from the King James Version, by the way. Sir, we would see Jesus. That's the way that it's translated. But typically the way that we use the word would causes us to wonder in our minds what is meant by the phrase. It could indicate something like hesitation, like we would see Jesus, but right now we're busy with other things. It might indicate, on the other hand, that maybe we lack some sort of knowledge. I would see Jesus, but I'm ignorant of who he is and where to find out more about him. It might indicate some sort of lack of ability. I would see Jesus, but I'm incapable of it. I'm blind to seeing him. But perhaps as I think about this and I look at this, I wonder if perhaps it was meant originally as a reminder to the preacher himself. A humbling statement that would be before the preacher of the Word of God. A reminder of humility. Perhaps it's like as if the congregation is saying, we would like to see Jesus, but we're going to have to deal with you. I wonder, what is behind this phrase, we would see Jesus? Translations in... Updated languages like the NAS and ESV make it very, very clear. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. The word there in Greek, fellow, to will or desire, to wish, to want. We want to see Jesus. That's what's being stated here. We want to see Jesus. These words are quoted from the lips of some Gentiles who come to Jesus shortly before his crucifixion. Remember, where we are here in the life of Jesus is in the last week of his life. He just cleared out the outer court of the temple, the court of the Gentiles, of that whole market bazaar that is there It's the second time he did it in his earthly ministry. And now what do we have? Lo and behold, the Gentiles, Greeks, coming into that very place to meet With Jesus, they come with one burning desire. We want to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. Our desire is to see Jesus. So obviously, this placard is an important one on the pulpit. It's a wonderful reminder to any preacher of the Word what needs to be given to God's people. What needs to be put in front of God's people week after week after week after week is that we desire that all of us would be given eyes to see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. What the world needs most is an introduction to Jesus. Not Jesus as we imagine Him to be, but Jesus as He really is. And when you meet the real Jesus, you'll discover that He is perfectly righteously angry with your sin and with your impurity, which is an affront to His perfect holiness. But you'll also find that the same Jesus is super abundantly gracious to forgive the deepest, darkest sins and to welcome the chief of sinners into his own family. You see, meeting the real Jesus will both terrify you and comfort you. It will mean your complete and utter undoing. It will mean your disintegration. But it will also mean Your restoration. It will also mean your recreation. So in a sermon entitled, We Would See Jesus, I'd like to note what obstacles must be overcome and what aids are provided for people to see and meet with the real Jesus Christ. We're going to consider those things that confront people and serve as obstacles to them seeing Jesus. These Gentiles wanted to see Jesus. What obstacles lay in the path of people who want to see Jesus? So I want to talk about those. And then we're secondly going to talk about the aids, the helps that God has provided to us in seeing His Son. So first, hindrances to seeing Jesus. And then we'll consider helps to seeing Jesus. The Greeks on this occasion wished to see Jesus. And so we'll start with a consideration of roadblocks that we all encounter in truly seeing Jesus Christ just as our bodies can be hindered from seeing things or from understanding the world aright because of vision problems so our souls can be darkened and therefore not see Jesus aright what are what are some hindrances that the world experiences in seeing Jesus Well, first of all, we have to start with the big, the big glaring problem that's in front of all of us as born into this world sinners and under the wrath of God. And that is the issue of personal blindness. We all come into this world non neutral. We come into this world fallen, in a fallen condition. And our souls manifest that reality. There is a big problem plaguing the human race ever since the fall, that of spiritual blindness, ever since the advent of sin. And our love of sin holds our wills captive. That means that even the choices we make are in bondage to sin. And apart from the grace of God, we don't want, we don't desire, we don't long for Christ as we ought Apart from God doing something in our hearts and doing something with our eyes, our spiritual blindness maintains us in a lost and darkened state. You see, you won't desire to see Jesus. You won't come seeking Him apart from a supernatural drawing by the Father, a wooing by the Holy Spirit. If it was left up to us, no one would ever seek an audience with Jesus. These Greeks coming to the temple wanting to see Jesus. What fueled that desire? What sparked that heart's desire to meet with Jesus? Let me ask this question more generally. What sparks the desire in anyone to meet with Jesus? What causes anyone to say, I long for Jesus more than anything else in this world. I want Christ. What causes that? What brings that about? Romans 3 tells us that there's none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who understands. There's none who seeks for God. They've all turned aside. Together they've become useless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Note in the middle of all that, there is none who seeks for God. There is none who seeks for God. Our fallen condition means that we grope around in the darkness, blind, not seeking God. Jesus said in John 6, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. There's an inability For us to see Jesus because we're blind. But the good news of the Gospel, Gospel meaning good news, the good news is that God hasn't left it up to us. If it was left up to us, we would never come. We would never desire Jesus. But God hasn't left it in our laps. He hasn't left it up to us. He knew our need. He knew our blindness. He knew our helplessness. And He came to save us. Romans 5. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the Scriptures are full of imperatives, full of commands, calling us to do things like flee from Satan, to It tells us to lay aside the sin which so easily entangles us. We're commanded to give up loving the world and seeking its vanities and its pleasures. We're given many, many commands. We're we're entreated to, to look for repentance and to believe. But all of these are established and motivated and fueled by indicatives, by statements. Statements that tell us that it is Jesus' work that gives us right standing with God. It's not that one day we just decide, I'm going to no longer be blind anymore. For our wills are just enslaved, that sinful nature. What we need is a divine miracle to happen. We need regeneration. We need to be given new hearts. We need to be born again. We need to be given eyes to see. Jesus says in verse 32 of the passage before us, I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw men, all men, to myself. See that? Will, not might, not perhaps, but will. You see, everyone who now enjoys salvation knows that their introduction to Jesus, their introduction to right standing with God through the blood of Jesus, happened as a miracle. Because they too, we all too once were blind. And those who were in Christ now see. We were unable to seek God until He sent His Son to rescue us. We were spiritually starved till He fed us. We were naked until He clothed us. We were lost until He found us. We were sick until He healed us. And we were dead until He gave us life. Remember, a blind man can't merely will to see. He has to be given sight. That's the first obstacle to seeing Jesus is a recognition of our blindness and our need to be given eyes to see. But added to this is Condition of blurry vision, our enemy, the devil, adds to our blindness of will by, we're told, blinding the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Satan hopes to keep the, the gospel veiled, covered. And oftentimes he works through agents of darkness, which can take on the form of spiritual powers and all of the rest, but also can take on the form of flesh and blood. Satan works through false teachers to bring about faulty diagnosis and faulty corrections, which ultimately are handled in such a way to try to cause people to despair of ever getting any relief or freedom in this life or the life to come. Have you ever had a less than fantastic experience at the dentist or at a doctor's office? Have we all had maybe a less than fantastic experience? Now, part of the problem for poor dentists and doctors is we rarely go to them when everything's good. Right. Oh, yeah. Why are you coming today? Well, I was feeling so well, doctor, that I wanted to see what you thought about my wellness. We don't often do that. We go to a doctor, we go to a physician, we're not feeling well. There might be occasional checkups and physicals, usually because they're forced upon us, not because we want to. But somebody else has told us we have to. We might have the routine dental checkups to hopefully stave off cavities and things of that nature when it comes to going to one of these professionals, usually something has already gone wrong, and so our experience from the outset is not going to be the most wonderful of them. But what we decide, at least is how I feel with the dentist, is going to the dentist is a worse evil than living with the pain in my mouth, so or not having teeth to chew. I, that's the pretty bad evil. So I'd rather go to the dentist than that. But otherwise, that's one of the last places that I would like to go. Poor dentist. But how much worse is a situation made if the doctor prescribes something wrong? How much worse is it if the dentist discovers a cavity, but then, oops, I pulled the wrong tooth? How much worse is the situation now? And that's why usually when things go wrong with either realm there, we get quite upset. We become all the more hurt by the situation because we've gone to a supposed professional. They've given us a diagnosis and now we realize that it was wrong. We, we might become disenfranchised with the entire field of dentistry as a result. Who knows? I mean, if it was a visit to an optometrist and they just gave me the wrong prescription of glasses, I mean, I'm going to have the hassle having to go back there and have them check my eyes out again or get me some new glasses or wait or whatever. But that's not nearly as big a consequence as when wrong diagnosis occurs in other areas of life. And please note this, no matter how bad it would be if you went in, let's say, and you had to have your right arm amputated and they amputated the left, no matter how horrible that kind of situation would be, it is nothing in comparison with a misdiagnosis of some spiritual condition. To tell people they're okay with God when they're not is a damning sort of misdiagnosis it carries with it eternal ramifications this is why we're told repeatedly throughout the scriptures to beware of false teachers beware of false teachers hold to sound doctrine because you see they're hard to spot they don't go around with a red letters on the front of their chest false teacher pharisee hypocrite they don't go around like that they're difficult to spot Jesus tells us to beware of them. In Jesus' own day, it was the religious leaders that caused the greatest hindrance to the general populace seeing Jesus. Because you see, in these moments, following Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, people began flocking to Jesus. However, as the general populace comes to Jesus, what do we see the religious leaders doing? They're angry. They're becoming more and more angry at the moment's Pass. And by this point, we're not all that surprised, are we? We've read enough in the Gospel accounts, and we're familiar with the story, to know what their intentions are. We've been told them explicitly already that they're plotting Jesus' death. They're hoping that they would be able to find Him, to arrest Him. And now they're confronted with the worst of all situations. Now it's not just they don't know where Jesus is, but now they know where He is, but they feel like they can't do anything about it. Why? Because the general populace, we're told, is hanging on every word that fell from Jesus' mouth. And so what do enemies of Christ do in such moments? Well, they turn on each other. And you see them start arguing with each other. See what's going on? Yeah, like the whole world's going after him. The whole world is going after him. I wonder if that was meant to be understood as an unwitting prediction regarding the coming spread of the gospel throughout the whole world. One of the reasons why I wonder that is because in the previous chapter, in John chapter 11, we came across Caiaphas, the chief priest's words, where he said to an assembled group of Jews, Jewish leaders, it's expedient that one man die for the people and the whole nation not perish. John says after that, he didn't know just how true those words were. Jesus came to die that the many would not perish. And here we have in the next chapter... The religious leader saying, man, now the whole world's going after Him. And they're not happy about it at all. There could be nothing better than the world going after Jesus. There should be nothing more that thrills our hearts than to think that the whole world is going after Jesus. But here are these religious men, the professionals, the professional religious leaders of that day. The ones who prided themselves in knowing the Scriptures and looking for the Messiah When they should have been rejoicing in Jesus, instead, we see a statement of awe and excitement, but it's not an expression of love and joy, but of sheer horror. What should have been for these men, a dream come true, was their worst nightmare being realized. We see just how blind these men were, and what a formidable obstacle they would be to others coming to see Jesus Jesus has some of his most harsh words for those religious leaders. We'll come to these later on in our harmony, but Matthew 23, verse 15. I just want to highlight one of them. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Wow. By the way, implication, you're a son of hell. And you're making them twice the son of hell as what you yourself are. All of your efforts are leading to the further damnation of souls. That's what Jesus is saying to those who should have been out heralding the coming of the Messiah. Hoping and longing and excited about the appearance of Jesus. We're confronted with personal blindness. We're confronted with blurry vision. We Also, another thing I think that, that can serve as an obstacle to us seeing Jesus are distractions. Distractions. You see, these are those things which are much more subtle. It's not like the false teacher here in front of everyone. It's a more subtle sort of thing that can distract our focus away from God. Prominence among these sorts of distractions are even good gifts that God gives. We're not talking about sinful behaviors, things that God has prohibited or forbidden. We're talking about good gifts that God has given But any time one of those good gifts circumvents its rightful place and usurps the place of Christ, and we live for that thing rather than for Jesus, we've got a problem. We have a distraction. We have a problem of focus. You see, it's the difference between doing a good job at work as unto the Lord, thanking Him for daily provision and provision for your family and desire to give Him glory and honor through the good job that you do, the difference between that and becoming enamored with your profession, your occupation, and finding your all in it. It's the difference between loving our children and bringing them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that contrasted with idolizing our children, living vicariously through them, measuring our entire sense of worth by their success in life. There's a problem. See, the differences are often a matter of focus, a matter of of attention, a matter of the heart. The externals might look very similar, but inwardly our motivations can be vastly different. It's similarly the case that a good many true things can be said in any sermon. Tremendous history lessons can be given. Moral examples can be shown. Pithy statements can be made. However, if a sermon fails to lead people to recognize and acknowledge their sin, acknowledge their need, if it fails to point them to Jesus Christ as their only hope of salvation, we might say that sermon had some good points, but the good points crowded out the most needful points, the most important. Perhaps one of the greatest distractions during a sermon is the preacher himself. In which case, John the Baptist's words are so helpful. I must decrease and he must increase. Perhaps we should etch that right below this. Sir, we would see Jesus. I must decrease and he must increase. You see, the devil has worked overtime providing us with distractions. We are easily distracted in our technological world. We're hit with advertising all around us every single day of our lives. Distractions abound. And the moment, haven't you noticed this before? The moment you try to remove one distraction, oftentimes it's like the Medusa's head, right? Outsprings many other distractions. Like, okay, so, you know, TV watching is a distraction, so I cut that off. And then instantly, Facebook fills the gap. You know, oh, Facebook is the thing, cut that out. And then suddenly, something else instantly jumps into its place. Satan loves to provide all sorts of distractions. He'd love to distract everyone's mind right now. We'd love to have us thinking about everything other than the Lord and Jesus Christ. We all struggle with this. We all deal with this on a day in, day out basis. Case in point in our text before us, look at verse 28. How is it possible that God the Father can speak from heaven and people not get it? How is it possible? How can people continue to be blind about who Jesus is when God the Father has spoken in reference to His Son? By the way, it's not the only time, is it? This is the third occasion that we have this in the Gospels. Remember, the first one happens at Jesus' baptism when a voice out of the heavens declares, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Matthew 3.17. It happens again. What's the second time? Remember? Transfiguration, very good. At The transfiguration, out of the cloud. Voice says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And now here, a few days before Jesus' utter submission and humiliation on the cross, a voice from heaven once again bears witness and makes testimony. After Jesus makes the request, Father, glorify Your name, He says, I have both glorified it, and I'll glorify it again. Jesus was never in doubt about any of this. Jesus didn't need any assurance from His Father. Jesus Himself indicates to us why this voice came from the heavens. It was a condescension to those around Him. Jesus said, this wasn't for my sake. I didn't need to hear that. It was for you, that you might hear it. God the Father provided this testimony, but immediately following such a miracle, spiritual blindness, blurred vision, and distractions abound. Various interpretations are offered on the occasion. You know, you got the materialists in the group. They're like, hmm, I know what this is. This is the sound of thunder. That was the sound of thunder that we just listened to. Those who were a little bit more spiritually minded in the group said, I think it was an angel's voice that we just heard. No one explains, but John is clearly indicating that this was an utterance from God the Father. What a moment that was. And it reminds us of this truth. Al Moeller has written a book, God is not silent. God is not silent. He has borne witness to His Son. The issue is that sinful people are deaf and they need to be given ears to hear. God speaks, but people reduce the experience to a moment of thunder. It makes me think of how many other times in this life do people write off the glories and blessings of God to mere circumstance and happenstance. Failing to give thanks to God for the marvelous things that he does. Got many uh, very nice emails from people and phone calls and visits. Thank you um, as we celebrated our fourth child coming into the world. And having just experienced that afresh again, I do not know how anyone can even consider the process of birth and not say God is an incredible, majestic, all-wise, most-loving God. I don't know how you can do that. But there's multitudes of other occasions in which this very same thing happens. We can preach the gospel, whether it's in a corporate setting like this or in private with another with a friend. And similarly, we can wonder how man can hard-heartedly reject the gospel. How can they stubbornly refuse Him who gave His life that sinners might be saved? Here it is. Jesus has given of Himself that you might be saved. That sinners all over the world might be saved. How can these write off the Gospel as mere noise? Mere noise. How much more plain could God be in revealing Himself to us in His Word, yet people refuse to listen? For that matter, God has placed enough evidence about Himself in the very fabric of creation to leave everyone without excuse. People hear noise. They just hear noise instead of hearing words invested with transformative power. Yet we know this, that God is at work through His Word to transform hearts. Just like when Jesus called the Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth! Jesus' word had power to bring about the very thing he was commanding. So we similarly trust God in his word to bring to pass the change that people need. To bring to life the dead. To grant sight to those who are blind. No matter how people, though, do respond to Jesus, Jesus makes emphatic in his text as well that his death and resurrection would mean judgment for this world and this world system and its ruler, Satan. Jesus' act would bring about judgment against his enemy and all of his enemy's hosts. God's wisdom is so manifest in this because at the very moment in which God is passing judgment on the world, he's also providing a way of salvation for sinners. Now, this is the sort of announcement that the people around there, at least part of this announcement, would have been the sort of announcement they would have expected. I mean, if Jesus is the king and he's coming into town, we're wanting to say things like, I'm going to defeat the enemies. <laughs> I'm going to reign. We're looking for that kind of language. And Jesus says something about how his kingdom is coming and the enemy's going to be judged. This makes sense. But the rest of what Jesus has to say doesn't. To the people. The means by which Jesus would accomplish this deliverance was completely unexpected. So Jesus would yet again give us an insight into what was about to happen, so that way believers after these events occurred could look back. Hindsight is 2020, right? They would look back and see what Jesus has said, and then consider that in light of what Jesus had accomplished. The peculiar shame by which Jesus would die was actually the means by which God would be glorified again. God says, I've glorified my name and I'll glorify it again. And He's going to do that even through the shame and the curse of the cross. You see, it wouldn't be by Jesus avoiding danger by which salvation would happen, but by Him entering into it and even dying to it. But this death didn't make sense to those listening in. But The crowd along there are saying, they're asking questions. Isn't the Messiah to live forever? They asked the question. Isn't the Messiah to live forever? Why are you talking about this being lifted up thing? Well, it's evident from John's statement that they didn't grasp the fullness of what he was saying, but they at least understood that Jesus was indicating something about death. Perhaps it was a euphemism that was used then, and so they were able to understand what he was talking to a little bit there, but they're like, isn't the Son of Man is supposed to set up His kingdom and it be forever? To be eternal? I mean, wasn't that the problem with all of the other would-be potential candidates for being that promised Son of David, the Messiah? Is that they all came and died? Isn't that the problem? Second Samuel 7 He shall build a house for My name. I will establish His throne, the throne of His kingdom, forever. So when that one comes, His throne will be established forever. That's a distinctive, Right? I mean, kings come and go. Presidents come and go. They have authority for a time, and then they die. And then their kingdom is done. But this one who's prophesied to come, the throne of his kingdom would be forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Ezekiel 37. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which the fathers lived. They will live on it. They and their sons and their sons forever forever. And David, my servant, will be prince forever. Psalm 89, verse 4. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. They're saying, if you're the Messiah, isn't it supposed to be forever? How can you speak about dying? What is this all about? We certainly feel that in such a case that these listening in had forgotten... But while this one's throne would be forever, that king would also be described as the servant of God who is pictured as a suffering servant in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, Zechariah 13, for example. He would be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, but his suffering would give way to glory. John says in verse 33, he was telling this by the kind of death that he was about to die. And here's the key element. The difference would not be in whether or not this son of David died, but whether or not he remained in the grave. Jesus willingly laid down his life, but then he took it back up again. The point of distinction would not be found in death, in experiencing death, but in the fact that death could not hold him down. Not even death could hold back the king from his kingdom. Jesus defeated death and the tyranny of it as well. You see, the final outcome of these events were never in question. Jesus was sure his father reinstated that these reiterated that these events would result in the glorification of God's name. This is what's so fascinating is that the glory of God is seen in the cross. It's really seen in the resurrection, but seen in the cross itself as well. He's there upon the cross. The attributes of God are shown in such a vibrant display. Both His holiness and justice coming down in pure and fearsome wrath upon sin. And yet, also His love and grace and mercy extended to sinners by this very same act. What a glorious God. And in the very moment that Satan looked to have won... Jesus was bringing about Satan's demise. He said, this action is going to bring about the conquering of my enemy. You see, we desperately need vision correction. We need to see Jesus aright. And God, in His grace and mercy, has provided the means by which that very thing can occur. Point number two, I want us to just quickly look at a few helps to seeing Jesus. Some helps. We've already mentioned this, but I'll just mention it quickly those blind eyes that we all come into this world with are granted sight. Those Greeks who came to Jerusalem for this feast, came to worship God, or told they are Greek-speaking, they could be any non-Jew. Some have argued that they were just Hellenized Jews. In other words, they were just Greek-speaking Jews. But I think it's pretty clear that that's not the case here. The narrative in John, right after the Pharisees say, look, you're not doing any good. The world has gone after him. The next verse, now there were some Greeks among those who are coming up to worship. John is deliberately placing this right here. You say, they just got done saying, look, the whole world's going after him. And then John says, "Case in point, enter Greek, stage right." right. And here they are. They're coming into the temple to meet with Jesus. Gentiles coming to the temple to meet with Jesus. The other thing is this whole hesitation. We know they had to be. They weren't just Jews or Greek speaking. Because why wouldn't they otherwise just go right to Jesus? We don't have any other occurrence, really, where Jews were hesitant about going to Jesus. We have some occurrences in which Gentiles were concerned about coming straight to Jesus. And why would they ask Philip? And why would Philip then have to ask Andrew before the two of them form a think tank and then go to Jesus? Why all of that? If these were just Greek speaking Jews. No, no, no. These were Gentiles. They're obviously proselytes. I mean, they came recognizing that Yahweh was the one true God. And they came to celebrate the feast. They were God-fearing Gentiles, akin to like the Capernaum Centurion who loved the Jews and built them a synagogue in Luke 7. Or perhaps like Cornelius in Acts 10, who loved God and prayed to Him often. They're precisely this sort of individuals who would be admitted to that outer court that Jesus had just purified. I wonder what they had heard. Had they heard or seen some of the events transpiring at the um, ride into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry? Could these men have been from the Decapolis, a region of Gentile territory that had word about Jesus spread like wildfire? All we know is that their hearts had been awakened and they were granted a burning desire to see Jesus. And note this, they're not just saying, oh, we'd like to see who he is. I'm sure they'd be able to figure that out. <laughs> it's that guy that everyone's clamoring toward. And hanging on his every word. And yeah, as we mentioned last time, is performing miracles of healing in the temple. And teaching. What they're looking for here is an audience with Jesus. They want to sit down and meet him. They want to talk with him. They want to listen to him. This is something which ultimately only God can create. In our hearts. What is the next help we see? Not only that God just opens our eyes, but He provides us with eyewitness testimony. He gives us genuine guides. There are all those false teachers out there, but there are genuine guides that when are asked about this, will lead us to Jesus. There are people who live their life, and this should be the life of every Christian, to push people to Jesus. You see, the most important thing is not what we know but who we know. And these Greeks, unlike the religious leaders, recognized Jesus and yearned to meet with Him. Yet, we see their humility as they wouldn't presume to be granted their own audience. They don't just rush forward and push the crowd and say, Jesus, you need to attend to us. Instead, they approach one of Jesus' disciples. They come to Philip. There's a lot of questions as to why Philip. Some people have said, well, Philip's name is Greek in origin, so maybe they felt like they'd have some camaraderie with him. Maybe, and we're told also that he lived in the state of Galilee. Maybe that region, why does John mention it? So perhaps it's mentioned because they came from a region near that. And so maybe they had some camaraderie with him. We don't know. It's not explicitly stated. But they come to Philip and then Philip turns and goes to Andrew. We find that interesting too. Why doesn't Philip just go to Jesus? Why does he go to Andrew first? Well, we do know this about Andrew. is We have a couple of the occurrences, John 1, John 6, where Andrew is continually introducing people to Jesus. It's kind of like the expert in community relations among the disciples, right? They're like, here, I'll usher you into seeing Jesus. And so, here, Philip comes to Andrew. And they talk. And they think. And they bring the matter to Jesus. I think I can see their dilemma. Can you at all? Sometimes we, we fail to consider in the moment what that must have been like. There they are in the temple, and they're probably considering, okay, how would Jesus respond to this? Are we going to do the right thing here? Should we grant these guys access to Jesus or not? Jesus had told the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 that it was not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. However, after this woman willingly said, I'll take even the crumbs, (laughs) even the dogs eat the crumbs, Jesus responds to that woman and says, O woman, great is your faith, be it done to you as you wish. He told the disciples when he sent them out on missionary journey early on Matthew 10 to not go in the way of the Gentiles. Don't enter into any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So there we have Jesus giving them instructions. Don't go to the Gentiles and Samaritans. Go to the Jews. In fact... We see him talking to a Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. He says to her, you worship what you what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet, and then he added, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshippers worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such the Father seeks to be his worshippers. Then Jesus proceeds after that, after having talked with this woman for a while, to travel with her into her city to interact with more Samaritans. He also remarked in Matthew 8, about that Roman centurion. Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. He announced in John 10, which we had read this morning. I have sheep, other sheep, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice. They will become one flock with one shepherd. Note the context here. He just made that statement John 10. Here we are, John 12. And what do we have? We have a little glimpse of that. Gentiles. Other sheep, not of this fold, not of the Jews, coming to Jesus. Remember, Jesus had some fairly strong words of rebuke for his disciples when they pushed away those children that wanted to be brought to Jesus by their parents. Jesus says, no, 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 no. bring the children unto me. So you see here, we can at least understand maybe some of their conundrum. They're probably weighing through some of those circumstances. Okay, so we got in trouble when we didn't bring the children into Jesus. Uh, we are told on this other occasion not to go to the Samaritans or the Gentiles. Um, but Jesus spent time with the Samaritan woman. And then we went to that Samaritan city and talked with them. and He had some really good things to say about Gentiles when they actually came. They exercised greater faith than anyone else in Israel. I'm sure they're in a conundrum. What do we do? And so, they decide in the end to bring the issue to Jesus' attention and see how he's going to respond. Robertson comments this way, Together, Andrew and Philip Bring the problem, not the Greeks, to Jesus. (laughs) You solve the problem, Jesus. We're not going to presume to know what to do here. We see some further signs that point to Jesus here, which further help our seeing Him. We're not told explicitly that Jesus received these Greeks. Jesus doesn't say to Philip and Andrew, Bring them on in! We don't have that statement. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus begins speaking in agricultural and economic terms. He talks about, he uses analogies, refers to seeds, refers to servants. But the approach of these Gentiles and their desire to see Jesus serves to indicate that the climactic hour for Jesus had come. He was going to draw all men to himself. And we're getting just, just a taste, just a glimpse. It's like he's at the door. He's just cracked. We're seeing just a glimpse of what is about to happen such that Jesus here comes out with a statement not specifically to them, but one that would be much more than what they would have even hoped or dreamed for. But this scene is so interesting. It almost harkens us back to Jesus' birth. Because here you see, days before Jesus' death, Gentiles coming to Jesus from a far distance with the simple desire to see Jesus. To worship God. Sir, we desire to see Jesus. Is that their request? Perhaps they had heard the shouts of Hosanna to the son of David. Save now. They'd come to celebrate the feast in Jerusalem, and now they hear the king is here. They want to see him. They want to meet him. Sound familiar? At Jesus' birth, shortly thereafter, the Magi, the wise men from the east, came to Jerusalem asking the following question Where is he who has been born, King of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. See, this is just, I think, a glimpse of the first fruits that are yet to come. It's the first hint that the mass of Gentiles are awakening to the reality of who Jesus is. And they're seeing what the religious leaders are denying. They're being seen, their eyes are being opened to what the religious leaders remain resolutely blind to. Remember God's covenant with Abraham promised that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. But for that to occur, Jesus states here what must first happen is that he must die. Jesus points to his coming death. The events that are about to happen were no accident. It was the perfect plan of God unfolding. Jesus' death would open the door to worldwide salvation. That's why he mentions that here. These, these Gentiles are wanting, they're clamoring to see Jesus, to meet with Jesus, and Jesus' response isn't to just push that off. His response is directed to them. This response is right for their benefit. Because it's his sacrifice alone that would allow entrance for not only Jews, but for Greeks also. His death was necessary. It was His death that would break down the middle wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles. You see, a non-dying Messiah, no matter how much wonderful teaching He had to give, no matter how many marvelous miracles He could perform, would not provide what we all needed most desperately. Because if He didn't die, there couldn't be forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. What Jesus states here is He... He goes beyond their request. He's saying, I'm not going to just grant you a moment with me. I'm going to make an avenue, a way by which you can be granted eternal fellowship with me. But it's not going to happen apart from my coming death. A sacrifice is required. A substitution is mandated. An atoning sacrifice to bear the wrath of God. In order that forgiveness and eternal life might be extended, Jesus must die. And to illustrate this, Jesus points to the world of agriculture. The whole world is Jesus's, right? All things came into being through him, for him. And we see, we see here, he points to the fabric of the land of plants. Of things with seeds. He says, in order for a seed to bear fruit, it must first die. Trees to us are so common that we don't consider it, I think, with the amount of weight that we should. We were given, as a gift from one of the teachers here at the school, um, uh, an, an acorn be planted and it's already been germinated and stuff so it's ready to go supposedly we'll see how well it goes we're horrible we have no green thumbs no green fingers no green anything so but anyway have you ever thought about how fantastic the thought that that one acorn can grow into a tree that produces how many more acorns it's not just a one-to-one ratio right it's like one to how many a billion who knows That one seed, once it dies and goes into the ground, it produces a crop that is so vast, so innumerable. Like the sowing and reaping principle, the fields are right under harvest, the mustard seed, the parable of the seeds and soils. Jesus makes use of the world of agriculture because he's the creator of the world. And he demonstrates that his governance over agriculture can be seen in spiritual realities. Just as the seed must die in order to bear fruit, so must I, Jesus says. And once I die, I will draw men to myself. There will be a production. There will be fruit. One of the most fascinating examples of this is the jack pine. This particular pine tree bears serotonous pine cones. Serotonus is a term that refers to pine cones that require heat in order to open up. You know that part of God's marvelous design with this tree is that it does not grow new trees unless a forest fire hits. And once the forest fire comes through that grove of trees, those pine cones open up and disperse their seeds. And so while everything else is dead, what you'll see after the fire are little. Jack pines growing up throughout the region. It's an amazing design by God to repopulate forests in the wake of forest fires. And it's just yet another glimpse of how God works, not to avoid the death of His Son, but through the death of His Son, to bring about not just life, but eternal life. You see, all this leads us to the importance of a right focus. To focus on Jesus, you have to allow everything else to move out of focus. To focus on Jesus, everything else has to move kind of out of focus. One of the things I've just noted, recently realized, part of it due to our recent relationship with Bella Vista and with Randy and Jessica and all the photography and videoing and stuff they do, is one of the distinctive differences with all of you guys with the fancy-dancy cameras is being able to see things, one thing focused, other stuff not. And there's something about it that just draws us in. We're intrigued by it. You know, I'm sure we've all had those disposable cameras. You take a picture and everything's at the same focus, right? And everything looks about the same. But to have something in focus and other things not. When a video does this, when it moves from focus from one thing to focus of another, our our interest is brought in. We're drawn into a consideration of the focus item. And our delight in it increases as all the background stuff kind of just fades away. There's still a setting. There's still a context in which to consider the subject. But everything else becomes background so that the subject can become front and center. You see, ultimately, that's what we hope to do with the gospel. There's a context. There's a biblical context for the life of Christ. But the hope is with all of those things, all of the shadows, that they would fade and Jesus become more and more vibrant to our eyes. As we consider the storyline, that it would cause us to rejoice all the more in our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, everything points us to the central figure in human history. The second person of the Godhead who took on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ. That's our hope. Sir, we would see Jesus. That's our hope. What's fascinating about John's account is how the immediate narrative following the Pharisees' disgruntlement and exasperation is a subset of the world coming to Jesus. We have a little sampling coming to Jesus. A group of Greeks come seeking Jesus. And just as Jesus' miracles present us a picture of, Christian had mentioned this recently, how things ought to be, how things will be in the new heavens and new earth, no more sickness, no more pain, no more tears, no more death. So these Gentiles give us a picture of the coming reality where one day, by God's grace, as His kingdom is advanced, there will be people of every tribe, tongue, and nation who are the fruit born of Jesus' death and resurrection. You see, all these wicked men are plotting the death of Christ, but God, all along, is using these very events to bring to pass what they wanted most. To stop. They say, Oh, look, the whole world is going after him. Let's kill him. And God says, You'll kill my son, but you won't stop the world from being drawn to him. By this very thing, the world will be drawn unto him. Jesus had come to this hour. Not to avoid this hour, but to meet this hour head on. Jesus, being fully God, knew what lay ahead of him. And being fully man, we're told here in this text that he was troubled in view of it. He was troubled by it. He experienced a full range of human emotion. Jesus was here staring death in the eyes. He knew the weight of sin that was about to be placed on his shoulders. He knew the righteous wrath that would fall from his heavenly Father upon him. He knew that he would be despised, demeaned, humiliated, crucified, pierced, crushed, and forsaken. And Jesus felt revulsion and horror regarding His coming betrayal and rejection and wrath-bearing. Jesus was troubled. But how did He respond? He said, What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. No. With utter resolve, and with harmony between His two natures, divine and human, Jesus says, For this reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. And the Father says, I both glorified it. And I will glorify it again. Jesus didn't ask to be rescued from this hour, but that God be glorified through this hour. Jesus does indeed provide an answer to these Greeks. It's a much fuller answer. A much more amazing answer. Not only would they see Jesus, but Jesus, by His death, would invite them into fellowship with Him by means of the cross. They would be drawn near. Jews and Gentiles would be made right with their Creator and Heavenly Father by the work of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Calvin remarks, The cross will be, as it were, a chariot by which Jesus shall raise all men along with Himself to His Father. What is Calvin pulling on there? He's thinking about Elijah, isn't he? Being caught up in a chariot and brought to heaven. Calvin says that God's means of providing us a chariot would be the most unlikely place. The cross, the death of His own Son. Jesus was lifted up and ushered into God's presence and our entrance would be granted by this completely unexpected means of transport, the cross. I finish with a quote from Arthur Pink. Unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And except Christ had died, none could be born again. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this morning. Please focus our eyes on Jesus. Lord, we want to see Jesus. May the songs that we sing be honest expressions of hearts. May we truly mean the words we say when we say things like, all I want or all I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Help us, Lord, to... By Your grace, overcome all obstacles to seeing Your Son. May we take full advantage of all of the wonderful provisions You've made for us to see Him clearly and rightly. Help us to point others to Jesus. To introduce others to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We delight ourselves in Him. We pray all this in His name. Amen.